Good morning, everybody. Oh, that doesn't sound so good, does it? It can only get better. <laughs> good morning, everybody. So, great to be with you this morning. Really good to come and join you in worship. Uh, It's great to partner with you guys uh, at St. Thomas Crooks. Uh, Whenever there's that sense of wanting to reach people for Jesus, it's true gospel partnership. And so, it's good to come and bring you the greetings of the Yorkshire Baptist Association. We're a network of around 100 churches committed to the same things that you're committed to in terms of wanting to plant new churches, revitalize existing churches, and reimagine what the church might look like in the future as we seek to reach a new generation who won't connect in to, to church like this. But how do we reach them for Jesus? We're, we're committed to doing things like that. And so, we thank you for your partnership. If you've got a Bible, you want to follow where we're going, I think the words are going to come up on the screen, but it's a familiar passage. It's Matthew chapter 8. It's just five verses that I want to read. You'll know them well if you've been going to church for any period of time. It's entitled, The Cost of Following Jesus. And this is what Matthew tells us, who wrote this gospel. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then the teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another disciple, do you see that word disciple? Another disciple came and said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But but Jesus told him, Follow me. And let the dead bury their own deads. Like I say, it's a familiar passage. And uh, this morning, what I want to try and do, I want to try and connect into some of the things that you've been doing over this last month, your, your vision month. I've had lots of vision Sundays, but obviously this is St. Thomas Crooks. You have a vision month. You can't fit it into one Sunday. You, you need a whole month's worth of Sundays to fit it into. In fact, my intention was to listen to all three of the vision Sundays uh, during the month of November. But I have to be honest with you and say that I only got to the end of Tom. 55 minutes. I thought, wow, I've got a long way to go yet. And I did need a fag break halfway through, actually, if I'm truly honest with you. Um, But uh, I want to try and tie in what I want to say to you this morning with what you've been thinking about Vision Sundays over these last three or four weeks as you're thinking about the direction of travel that God is calling you to live into over this next season. I I love the way that you as a church... There's continuity between the church you were and the church you're called to be today. So so you're still called to be a church for the city. I love that. Uh, There's one sense, nothing has changed, has it? But there's another sense, everything has changed. Because the context we find ourselves in now, between the 80s, 40 years ago, and where we find ourselves today is so, so very different. And the people we're trying to reach for Jesus is so very different. So I live just down the road from Bradford. So very different today to what it was. As you drive through the middle of Bradford, at Zion Baptist Church it used to be. A hundred years ago, used to gather a thousand believers for worship every Sunday. Now it's a Sikh Gurdwara. Actually, there's no evangelical witness, hardly at all, within the whole of the centre of Bradford. 96 mosques. How do you reach people like this for Jesus today? 
Actually, we may have the same heart, but actually the context we find ourselves in is very different, isn't it? But I love your vision. I love your vision uh, about wanting to be a family of hope and, and, and loving where you live and loving where you are and this expanded vision of new interns to serve the city and a social conscience that's, that recognises God's preference for the poor. Uh, and this idea of being an eco-church, I've got this idea, you know, of one of these drones above this building and seeing all the solar panels that Tom seems to suggest that you're going to get on the roof here uh, at some stage this year. So I, I listened. Uh, I listened to you wanting to be called to be to belong and to serve and to give. But actually, this was a question I had after listening to, to, to the vision Sundays that you've been that have been taking place here over the last three or four weeks. You see, it's one thing to to have a vision. It's another thing to see it come into reality, isn't it? Don't you think? Haven't you been here lots of times and heard lots of vision Sundays? Sorry, nothing against Tom. Haven't you? He's preached them. Haven't I? It's one thing to know where you want to go and to know the person you want to be. It's another thing arriving at that destination, isn't it? Don't we all know that from our own personal lives? This morning, I want to look at this passage because I want to suggest it gives three postures that are essentials if we want to see dreams become reality. So actually, I've preached at loads of Vision Sundays. I was a pastor of a church, a couple of three churches, before I came into the role that I'm in now. I've come to realize that what makes a great church is not its vicar, though it does help if they're charismatic and entertaining, and you've certainly got one of those. Tom Mate, he he's greatly engaging. It's not a large staff team. Though it greatly helps if they understand their role as equipping the saints for the works of ministry. It's not a great strategy or a streamlined organization or Sunday gatherings because none of these things were present in the early church and the early church grew at a rapid rate. Now this morning, what I want to suggest, what makes a great church is when everybody leans into these three postures that Jesus outlines in this little passage called the cost of following Jesus. What are they? I've called them the three F's, uh, following, forsaking, and forming. Following Jesus, wherever he calls us, we seek to listen to his voice, we're all in, everybody's called, forsaking everything. Because in him we found the pearl of great price, and he's worth expending everything on. And then forming, forming holy habits, embedding them in our lives so that we ourselves become like Jesus. So that here within this congregation, there's tens and hundreds of little Jesuses scattered at the end of Sunday services, out into the community in which you find yourselves, punching holes in the darkness. I want to say these three postures help us to move from dream to reality. So, so can I explain a little bit more what I mean by that, by unpacking them one by one? Firstly, this idea of following. Following. It's the first posture, which is what Jesus calls this disciple to do, who says to him, Lord, I will, sorry, who says to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus responds to him by saying, let the dead bury their own dead, but, but you come and follow me. 
And I want to say that, that this word, following, it's an oft-repeated word in the Gospels. It's the invitation that Jesus makes to the twelve when he first invites them to be his disciples. Come follow me, he says to them. But if you follow Jesus for any length of time, I'm pretty sure you'll know this. That actually following him is easier said than done, isn't it? Like, um, when I thought of following Jesus, I was made to think of that game uh, that you play growing up, Simon Says. Do you remember it? Um, you know, uh, the point of the game is to follow Simon's instructions. Whatever Simon says, you, you, you do it. So if Simon says, raise your hand, you all raise your hands. You, you're really engaging today, aren't you? I don't know whether you like there are people out there. Maybe the lights are really bright so you can't see everybody, you know. So, hey, you just keep going. But uh, I, I thought of playing the game, but then I thought maybe not. Uh, but you know the game, don't you? Do you know? Everybody's played it. It's quite simple. You only do it if Simon says it. You don't do it if you don't say it. It all sounds pretty simple and straightforward to stay in, but actually it, it's harder done than said. I want to say it's exactly the same with following Jesus. Following him sounds easy, but in reality it's much harder. Well, why is it much harder? Well, I think there are three reasons why it's much harder within this passage. Firstly, it's harder because following Jesus always results in you being pushed out of your comfort zone, constantly. Pushed out of your comfort zone. So, so I want you to understand this passage. Let me do a little bit from the Bible with you. Uh, out of this passage, the cost of following Jesus, it's, it's placed right in the centre of these two chapters, Matthew chapter 8 to Matthew chapter 10, the second part of Matthew's Gospel, where the Gospel writer is constantly asking the question, who is this Jesus? And what we find in these two chapters is that Jesus cannot be tied down. He constantly goes against conversation. The institution cannot hold him. You think you've got him worked out and then you realise you haven't because Jesus won't be reduced to a set of rules and regulations. And so he constantly overturns the expectations of who? Particularly he overturns the expectations of the religious community because the institution that tries to hold him and tie him down, that's not where he's present. Actually, he's present out there. And so within this passage, you see lots of places where Jesus pushes people out of their comfort zone. Like at the beginning of chapter 8, if we were to go back there, you see Jesus cleansing a leper. He does the unthinkable. He touches a man who is permanently, ceremonially unclean. And so for all the crowds who were watching on and his disciples, they were saying to themselves, Jesus, you can't do that. That's not permitted. You make yourself unclean by touching that person. But Jesus goes against convention and shows the love of God to those who were considered outcasts. And then this is further exemplified in the next story, which is the healing of the Gentile centurion servant. Chapter 8, verse 5 following, where through Jesus, God's blessing is extended to those who stand outside the house of Israel. It's all symbolic of what's to come. And then you move over into chapter 9. 
And Jesus calls a corrupt tax collector to follow him, that the one who wrote this gospel, Matthew's gospel. The strange thing is, he's outside of the community. He is the outcast, yet he is the one who exemplifies good discipleship. What does good discipleship look like? Well, actually, we're told in Matthew chapter 9, this, this tax collector, he immediately gets up from his tax collector's booth, leaves everything, and follows Jesus. And then against convention, Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners. And then the end of chapter 9, um, verse 19 following, there's three little miracles. The healing of the dead girl, the healing of the sick woman, and the blind and the mute man. And, and all of them, they're actually called Amaritas, people of the lands. They're unprivileged, they're outcasts. The woman with a menstrual flow is unclean. So is the dead girl. The blind and the mute men are outcasts. But Jesus extends the love of God to those who are on the margins of society and he heals them all. Actually, it's like Jesus is saying, these are the very people that the kingdom is all about. Actually, you've got a misunderstanding of what it means to be kingdom people. These are the people who are right at the centre, yet you push them right to the edges. And the point of the passage, the point of these two chapters is to be a follower of Jesus is a dangerous occupation. Because if you're serious about following him, he will push you beyond the point where you feel comfortable. And he'll challenge all your norms and values, and he will turn your world upside down, and he'll make what you think is important change to what is important to him. Actually, following Jesus is constantly uncomfortable. No matter how long you've been following him for, it continues to be in this place where you're constantly pushed. So, so this is my question. You, STC, as you think about commitment Sunday, maybe this is a different type of commitment. Are you ready for this type of commitment? To be pushed out of your comfort zone? Beyond where you think you can imagine? If you really want to see a vision realized. To see a dream become reality. But in God's kingdom, it seems to me this passage says that everything we know is turned upside down. Following Jesus means we're constantly pushed outside of the place where we feel easy. And then secondly in this passage, um, not only are we pushed beyond our comfort zone, but did you notice in this passage, um, Jesus raises the, hub, the bar higher rather than moves it lower. Did, did you notice that um, in response to this first person? I wonder how you'd have responded. Um, a lawyer, a young, capable guy, big crowd of people. He's been following Jesus, hanging on his every word. Jesus is getting into the boat and uh, he steps out of the crowd. He's got courage, steps up. Jesus, I'll, I'll follow you wherever you go. What would you have said? Sounds like he's very committed, doesn't it? Wholehearted, sold out. Actually, maybe he would have been in for you, but do you notice Jesus? It's like Jesus doesn't lower the bar, he even raises it higher. What's his response to him? Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. It's like Jesus is asking the question, do, do you really want to follow me? Uh, um, do you really want to come after me? It's like Jesus raises the bar higher than it was previously placed. 
And I want to say, for dreams to become reality, I always think the dream has to pass through the cross. It's like there is glory, but the glory is the other side of the cross. It's painful to get there. It's a tough journey. And so the question there is, are we up for the, for the bar being raised higher? And then the last thing of this passage. Actually, what Jesus calls for, actually, this is what discipleship is truly all about. It's all about obedience. Jesus just simply wants obedient disciples. Um, I only realized this recently. Um, that word obedience comes from the Latin word to listen. Uh, it comes from uh, uh, the, the Latin word audere, from which we get the word audible. Um, you know, to listen, to hear. So it's a conjunction of two Latin verbs. Ob, which means obey, or dare, which means to listen, obedere, from which we get this, this word obedience. And so the idea is that in a world of competing voices, as followers of Jesus, we seek to listen in and lean on God's voice. His words are the ones we choose to follow. And so in the monastic tradition, um, uh, this idea of listening, obedience coming out of listening, it's expressed through this phrase, the double exercise of freedom. The freedom of discernment, the freedom of choice. This week, as you go out from here, there'll be all sorts of different voices telling you how to find the good life. Uh, uh, the crowd, consumerism, our, our culture, constantly we're bombarded with ideas about how we seek to find the good life. But actually, discernment is about hearing God's voice in the midst of all those voices. Do you see what I'm saying? It's seeking to listen to God. And when we listen to God and discern his voice, then we have a choice, the freedom of discernment, the freedom of choice, whether we choose to want to walk in it. And we, we don't always do that, do we? Is it just me? Or is it everybody else? We hear what God says to us, yet sometimes it's so very difficult. But actually, the freedom of discernment, the freedom of choice, we choose to hear what God says to us, and then the final step of obedience is listening to God and seeking to live out that which we know He's spoken to us about. Then we're obedient. But unless you listen, unless you listen to God, you can never be obedient to Him. So, so bring all these three things together this week. As you think about you as a church here at STC, uh, as you think about how you're pushed out of your comfort zone, how the bar is raised higher, how you go out of here, seek to listen to God in the different situations in which you find yourself. As you open the Bible, it's not just opening the Bible to read it because that's what you know you should do. You're opening the Bible and reading it and saying, Lord, what do you want me to do with what I'm reading this week? And then next week, as you come back together, just imagine this, as you seek to fulfill your vision. Actually, there's no sermon next week. Do you know, rather than a sermon, we're going to get together in small groups and we're going to listen to all the stories in those small groups of all the ways in which you've been putting this into practice. And we're going to have 20 small groups, and you're going to choose the best story out of the small group to be able to present to everybody else. And we're going to hear 20 stories of how God's been at work, and how the vision that we've got is being realised in the different places in which we find ourselves.
So we're going to move from attractional worship, consumerism, where we all like it, because it's nice when, when we're all here to practice. How is this working out within our lives? Don't you think that would make a difference? As we seek to model it within the way that we are as we come to church. That this forms the basis of what it means to be church. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. The first posture is the posture of following. The second posture is the posture of forsaking. Uh, um, now, uh, you, you need to understand um, this passage in its bigger context. This is, this is a, a day in the life of Jesus. Uh, the cost of following Jesus, this little narrative here, it, it fills a whole day that starts at chapter 5 and finishes at chapter 9. It's one day in the life of Jesus. These two guys follow Jesus throughout these four chapters. They, it starts in the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 5 and verse 1. These two guys who step forward are there on the mountainside listening to Jesus with the new ethical law that he's offering that day. And they're spellbound, hanging on his every word like the large crowd that's listening to him that day. And then they follow him as he comes down the mountainside. Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 6, Matthew chapter 7, the Sermon on the Mount. They've heard what he said. And as they follow him, they watch Jesus as he cleanses a man of leprosy. And then they see the centurion's servant healed. And then, along with the crowd, they end up outside Peter's mother-in-law's house. She's not very happy. So many people uh, being around the house at that time. But not only does Jesus heal her, but all those who are demon-possessed and ill, he heals them and frees them from outside her house. And all this happens on the same day. And these two men are part of it. They're both beside themselves. That's what I want you to understand. They're giddy with excitement because they're amazed, not only at everything they've seen, but also everything that they've heard. And so they want to follow Jesus. I think their words often exemplify our words when we're inspired and excited. Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. I'm up for it. I'm here. Count me in. Don Carson says in his little commentary that the first is too quick in promising, the second is too slow in performing. I don't know whether that expresses these two disciples in this passage, but I do know for sure they're enthusiastic because of everything they've seen and heard of Jesus. But then this is the amazing thing. It's like Jesus metaphorically throws a cold bucket of water over them. He dampens their enthusiasm. Because he says to them in this passage, guys, if you, you decide you want to follow me, I, I just need to tell you this beforehand. I just need to give the inside track of what you're letting yourself in for. What, what is it? It's a life of no security and no stability and a loss of privilege it's like Jesus says to these two guys, to follow me requires total commitment to the cause. There's no going back. Nothing can get in the way, absolutely nothing, even the death of your own father. So, so this is the thing. Tom Wright, his little commentary, says that in Jesus' time, the most important thing a devout Jew could do every day was recite the Shema. 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is the only Lord. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Nothing was more important for a devout Jew than reciting the Shema every day. But there was only one thing that took precedence over saying this prayer. According to the rabbi's teaching, it was when a man's father died. Then he had such a strong obligation to give him a proper burial that this comes before even saying the Shema prayer. Burying your dead was so important. So can you see in this passage, for Jesus to say, let the dead bury their own dead, actually this is one of the most shocking things that Jesus says anywhere in the Gospels. He goes against the whole of culture. It's like Jesus is saying, what I'm doing is so important and so urgent and so immediate that it's the only thing that matters. Whatever else you're thinking of doing, this must come first. So it's, it's like Jesus says to these two men, guys, I, I do want you to follow me. It's not like anything's changed. The invitation's still there. But I want you to know what it involves. And this is what I love. Matthew's a great gospel writer because he doesn't tell us how they respond, does he? It's almost like the demands that Jesus makes of these two men, it passes on to us. It's like Matthew, the gospel writer, says to us, it doesn't matter how they responded. The question is, how will you respond today? The cost is, is exactly the same. It, it's not changed. And this is the thing for me, having followed Jesus for 45 years. Sometimes this whole thing of forsaking comes to me every day. Still, early morning in my study, when I'm by myself, using a liturgy to pray. And Jesus is asking me how serious I am about what I'm praying and about what I'm saying. And these are the postures. The posture of following, but the posture of forsaking. How serious are we about this, Jesus asks. It's not me that's asking the question. Actually, I feel uncomfortable about asking the question sometimes because it feels like you're pushing it onto people. That, that's not my intention. It's Jesus who's doing that in this passage. He's talking to you about the cost of following him if you want to live for such a time as this, at this time, in this place, it's going to be costly. And then the third posture. Um, the postures of following, the postures of forsaking, and then this third posture. The posture of being formed into the image of Jesus, which is at the heart of what it means to be one of his disciples. We want to become like him in attitude and outlook and character, recognizing that following and forsaking, it's not about chasing a vision. It's not about chasing a dream. It's not about seeing it coming to reality. Following and forsaking Jesus, the ultimate goal of discipleship is to become like him, to be formed into his image, to, to become nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. It's like all these things naturally follow on. They're a consequence of the postures that we take up. It's like when we pursue them for their own ends, um, 
that something somewhere goes wrong. We're pursuing the wrong thing. It's actually Jesus we're pursuing. It's actually the formation of Jesus within us that we're pursuing. The call to discipleship is about being formed into his image. So the story is told of an American hospice chaplain called Larry who was supporting an 80-year-old patient whose name was Mary. She was a devout Christian. She'd been in the hospice for some weeks. She was slowly deteriorating. She was getting weaker. She was in the terminal phase of a cancer. And then one day, uh, the chaplain, Larry, got a call to say that Mary had suddenly deteriorated overnight and that if he wanted to see her, maybe she, he should go to the hospital as, as soon as possible. And when he, when he arrived, um, she was in a deep sleep, um, unsure as to whether she was unconscious uh, uh, or sleeping. He decided not to try and wake her, but just to stand by her bedside and to pray for her. And just about when he was to leave, she opened her eyes, and their eyes met. And, and she stared at him in the silence. Uh, and then she said to him, Oh, for a moment, Pastor Larry, I thought you were Jesus. And he laughed about it. But, but then uh, Larry said to her, Hey, Mary, um, could you do me a favor? When you do finally get to heaven, could, could you do me a favor and uh, say to Jesus, uh, uh, Oh, for a moment, I thought you were Pastor Larry. <laughs> um. But the point of the story is that once in a while, we should all be mistaken for Jesus. Um, that's what it means to be a true disciple, a follower of him. When the gap between the master and the servant becomes so small that you can't even see it. And so you, you, you've got a great vision. You're a great church. Um, actually, St. Thomas Crooks Church um, has had a significant impact, not only on the city so far, but, but on the nation, uh, um, internationally as well, with all the stuff that's come out of here. But, but history doesn't matter much nowadays, does it? Um, what you did in the past doesn't help you to live well in the present. And so these three postures of following and forsaking and being formed into the pattern of Jesus and taking what you hear and seeking to put it into practice in the situations in which you find yourself, actually that, that's what makes the difference between a dream and it coming to reality. When we all take it seriously and we're all able to tell, share stories of how we've talked about Jesus this week and he's made a difference in our life and we can see how he's making a difference in other people's lives. So this week I, I was reading uh, the book of Hebrews. Um, as I go through the Bible every day in a year, Hebrews chapter 10 made me think of lots of people who've been here who will have heard what I've said many times before. It's nothing new. And the believers there had endured great suffering and they'd been in exposed to insult and persecution. They'd even have their property confiscated. It had been going on for so long, some of them were now asking, was it all worth it? They'd given up so much, committed themselves to so much, 
but they've got so little to show for it. Was it all worth it? Why do we keep doing this self-flagellation? And the the writer to, to the Hebrews reminds them, don't throw it all away. It's not a waste of time. Keep meeting together, he reminds them. Reminding yourselves that God is with you, of the vision that he's given to you. Give yourselves wholeheartedly to it, he says. Persevere and do the will of God. Know that you have a better and more lasting possession. Live a holy life, the writer to the Hebrews says, for without holiness, no one sees God. You, like me, have been around this circle before. Is it all worth it? Of course it's all worth it. Of course it's all worth it. Because it's all about Jesus, isn't it? It's all about serving Jesus and giving him our lives. And we cannot find freedom, and we've not been able to find freedom in any other place. So so, uh, Matthew, in his gospel, here, he says to you, pursue your vision hard. Uh, Don't do it Uh, um, half-heartedly. Work hard at pursuing it. Give it everything that you've got, everything you can give it. But in doing so, follow these three postures. Be a faithful follower of Jesus. Forsake your all for him and be formed into his image. Let's be quiet for a moment, shall we?